in the US, uh, and also in comparison to Europe in this event. And we are very happy to have with uh, us Thomas Philippon, who is professor uh, of finance at the New York University at the Stern School. And we are double happy because uh, he's also in the Scientific Council of uh, Bruegel. So, uh, and uh, Thomas, as you all know, I'm sure, has recently published uh, a book about uh, market concentration in the US and uh, its implications. I mean, it is fascinating to read. Uh, it provides some uh, statistics that uh, uh, probably uh, they provide a very strong message about what is going on. Uh, and um, um, we are very happy to have him uh, here to present this book, which has been proven uh, very influential. It's all the time in the news and published recently. Uh, and um, uh, then um, I'm very happy to have our senior expert in the field, uh, Reinhilda Weigelers, uh, who was one of the first person to uh, get the book and read it. And I'm sure she has uh, a lot of comments. Um, so uh, let's, let's go directly to the talk. Everyone is here to uh, hear the speakers. Please, Thomas, go ahead. between a third or a quarter of the baseline concentration. <clears throat> um, it's not true in every single industry, but it's true in most of them. So I think that's fact people agree on. Um, where there's disagreement oops, sorry, is on the, um, on the interpretation of the fact. So to cut the long story short, there are essentially two camps. Um, you have the good concentration camp and the bad concentration camp. So good concentration, of course, can happen if um, you have an industry and the leading firms start to innovate more than the rest. Okay, so mechanically then what happens is that because they get more productive and more efficient, they're gonna take over <laughs> larger market shares and therefore the industry is gonna look more concentrated, okay? But that's driven by efficiency gains, right? by productivity growth by the leading firms. So typically, when that happens, you see concentration, but it comes together with lower prices and higher productivity growth. Um, 
It also typically comes, especially in recent years, with a lot of intangible investment. And prime examples of that would be the retail uh, trade sector or the wholesale trade sector. I'll show you some data on that afterwards. Okay, so that's kind of the good type of concentration. So when we see that as economists, we are happy because we think that's efficient. The bad type concentration is when the concentration, instead of being driven by faster productivity growth by the leader, is driven by the leaders being able to protect their markets, okay, so to create barriers to entry. So in terms of concentration, it could have the same impact. You would see that the leaders have higher market shares. Okay? But of course, you wouldn't, that would not come together with uh, low price and high productivity. It would typically come with the opposite. You would see higher prices, potentially lower productivity growth. Okay? And so a prime example of that in the US would be the telecom industry, the airlines, the healthcare system. Um, now, if it's true, then the question of course becomes, what are these barriers? You know, what is driving the, the fact that the incumbents feel protected from the rest? So I think much of the, the, much of the research really is about figuring out how much of the good type versus the bad type concentration is going on in the economy. Of course, you can already imagine that the answer is always being somewhere in between these two. That is, at any point in time, some industries have a dynamic that suggests good concentration. Some have a dynamic that suggests bad concentration. And the only interesting question is what's the balance between the two? Do we see more of the good type or the bad type? Um, and then, of course, a related question, if you can understand the first one, is, is it driven by technology or policy? Which is, that's the key question for policymakers. Um, so I'll speak to both of that. So let's start with an example of good concentration. And uh, this one is the example of Walmart, because it's the most striking one. So Walmart, uh, on, so this is the market share and the profit margin. So the red line, the triangle, is the market share. It's measured on the, on the right axis. It goes from zero to 60%. Okay, so it's a pretty massive increase in market share for one firm. Somewhere between the mid-80s and the mid-2000, Walmart uh, essentially took over more than half of its sector. And how did they do that? Well, they did that by having a very large investment in IT, okay, which, so is this, most of the you know, like super high-tech uh, um, you know, technology that we use now in retail trade that Amazon is using, for instance, that was developed by Walmart initially. The just-in-time technology the, 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 for inventory management, the idea that you, know, you scan the item in the store and immediately the order is shipped to China, so in real time, this is all Walmart. Also, the, uh, having great uh, software access for suppliers so they can uh, manage their own supplies into Walmart stores. That's also the idea. So, you know, a lot of this kind of intangible investment. Um, that, get, that makes them more productive. Then they extremely aggressively compete. So very disruptive, right? They, they, they put many uh, other retail stores out of business. But they cut prices. So if you look at this period of time, retail prices keep going down, or retail margins, if you want. Um, and that's how they get their market share. Okay? And the key thing here is, you see, higher concentration, but it comes together with fast productivity growth. In fact, to the point that just Walmart was maybe like something between 10 and 20% of the entire TFU growth of the US in the 1990s. It's gigantic. Um, lower prices, price, price index in retail are falling. And uh, the profit margin of Walmart, it's kind of stable. Maybe it's decreasing a tiny bit. That's mostly a composition effect. But by and large, you know, their profit margin is stable over time. So, that looks like good type concentration. 
Now, in recent years, in the US, it looks much, like, much less like that. Okay. So since 2000, um, there is a bunch of uh, indicators that suggest that we have more of the bad type concentration. So the first one that I found was looking at investment. When Walmart did its uh, you know, expansion, they were investing a lot. So the, the rate of investment was very high. But if you look at the US today, the rate of investment is low. Okay. So you have this puzzling feature, which is industries are making lots of money, so profit margins are very high. Funding costs are very low. Of course, you can borrow very cheaply. That gets reflected in very high valuation. So in economics, when you compute something like Tobin's Q, it's very high. And so all of that <coughs> should predict high investment rates. And we don't see that in the data. In fact, investment rates have been pretty mediocre in the US. So then the question is, what's going on? Well, it turns out that if you think it's driven by rent, then it explains all the facts. Because if the, the excess profit correspond to uh, you know, more market power by the incumbents, they're going to be high. They're going to be capitalized in high stock, stock values. But of course, at the margin, they're not going to invest. So that was the first hint that something else is going on. If you do this kind of calculation, you find that um, you know, the capital stock is about 7% too low compared to what it would be if firms, have, if firms had continued investing according to the usual way we compute the optimal investment. But then it's even more interesting when you break it down by industries, which is what's done here. So here I'm plotting the capital gap. That is the gap between what, what firms should be doing if they had followed standard Q theory of investment versus what they actually do. And in the aggregate, if you plot that, it's going to be a decrease by about 7% since 2000. But in fact, what's interesting is the gap is not at all uniform across industries. So in the red line, this is the capital gap for the bottom 10 by growth of concentration. That is, industries where concentration uh, did not increase very much. In fact, for these ones, it turned out it was kind of flat. So the red lines are industries that did not get more concentrated. And you see there's no capital gap. It's close to zero. Instead, if you look at industries that got more concentrated, so this is the top 10 industry by high concentration, by high change in concentration, then you see that the capital gap is very large. In fact, it's about 14%. So if it's 7% in the aggregate, in fact, it's 14% in highly concentrated industry and 0% in non-highly concentrated industry. So that's telling you that something is going on there which doesn't look like the textbook case of efficient concentration because it comes together with lower investment. Um, then you can look at other measures, profit rates, labor shares. They all point to something significantly uh, to a significant drop in, in uh, market competition in the 2000 in the US. The next question then is, okay, is it policy? And that's very hard to do because, of course, you don't have a, a perfect comparison. But it turns out that you, that's why I started looking at the EU in details, not expecting to find what I did find. Um, if you look at Europe, um, none of that is happening. So profit margins are stable, labor shares are, sta are stable, and uh, concentration are actually also quite stable. So the range of, so concentration measures for Europe are even more difficult to construct than for the US. So you have a range of estimates. Um, my own estimate is it's zero, it's flat. Um, the most recent one I saw um, is slightly decreasing. This is the OECD measure, which is slightly increasing. But this is Europe in red, and that's the concentration in the, in the US in, in green. So clearly, uh, you know, at the very least, what's going on in the U.S. happens in Europe at a much slower pace. 
I think actually if you take the average of all the measures we have, it's kind of flat. Um, and in any case, you would expect with a single market to see some concentration at the EU level, and that would be the efficient type concentration. So something is not happening in Europe, but it is happening in the US. And um, then you dig deeper and you realize, okay, so why is it that these markets in Europe did not get more concentrated, and some of them actually got less concentrated? And most of the time what you see are policy changes. So the prime example here is, that's one of my favorite, of course, this is the price of communication services in France. And that actually speaks to my own personal story, which is I arrived in the US in 1999. That's why I left Europe to do my PhD in, uh, in Boston. So when I arrived in the US, it was much cheaper to connect to the internet because remember, they had deregulated the telecoms earlier, so that means local calls were free, which was very important when you used the modem to connect to the internet. It was free in the US, it was very expensive in France. So it was much cheaper to connect to the internet in the US than in Europe. It was much cheaper to fly. I realized that as a student, uh, I could fly from MIT to conferences in the US, even though I didn't have much money because plane tickets were cheap. And then as soon as we started to have cell phones, cell phone plans were cheaper in the US, a lot cheaper, okay, 20 years ago. Now everything I've said is exactly reversed today. All of these items are way cheaper in Europe. And I'm not saying 5% cheaper, I'm saying 50% cheaper. Something drastic happened. Um, and um, in part, it's driven by higher concentration in the US, but also in part it's driven by the opposite happening in Europe. And the prime example, or one good example, would be communication services. So this is mostly, uh, unfortunately that's not only cell phones, uh, it's a bunch of other services as well. But this is um, data from the World Bank, you know, the, the PPP data we use for comparing GDP around the world. So that's the price index for communication services in France divided by the price index in the US, okay? Um, so it's pure raw data, there is no econometrics. And this is 2011. Now you know what happened in 2011? We gave a license to free, that's it. So we used to have three operators, classic oligopoly, high prices, lots of lobbying behind the door to make sure nobody else would get another license. They lost in 2011, we gave a license to free mobile, free mobile entered and cut the price by half. And since then, that's it. Prices have been essentially half what they used to be. So we went to being something like 10 to 20% more expensive than the US to being 25% cheaper. Actually today we are almost 50% cheaper. In cell phones, we are. In some other, like the, the average would be, let's say, 30% cheaper. So that's a gigantic industry, and the price change in two years is 40 or 50%. Now you see it in the data. Like, this is not noise. Um, so that's kind of an extreme case. If you take a broader perspective and you take the typical, like, CPI, something like the price index for the, a broad basket of goods and services people actually buy, then the difference is something around 7 or 8%. And you can see it on this picture. This is the one measure of markups, um, which would be the price index minus the unit labor cost. Okay, and I look at the changes of that thing over time. So if you compare price to unit labor cost, they move at the same rate in Europe. So in Europe is in green, um, kind of no trend. But in the US, prices start to increase relative to unit labor cost, and to the tune of you know an excess of eight or nine percent in this graph. So broadly speaking, if you look at diff, you know, various types of metrics for um, you know, investment, prices, concentration ratios, 
labor shares, profit margins, you see this, di this diverging trend in the US relative to Europe. And it's useful for Europe and for the US because it helps you understand what's happening in each country. So my estimate today is that um, in the US, prices are too high by about you know, 7 or 8%. So if you take the typical basket of goods and services consumed by the median household, it's about you know, too high by something that's 7 or 8%. That's a big number, I'll show you later. Um, does that, so then it makes you think, okay, well, how do they get away with it? Okay. And that's where the political economy kicks in. Uh, that's where I think lobbying expenditures in particular start to play a key role. Something that changed in the US uh, drastically in the 2000s is the increase in lobbying expenditures and very co closely connected. So this is what we call technical lobbying. And then there's something else, which is campaign finance, which is another item. Okay, so that's not included here. Um, and both started to increase very quickly. And what we see in the data, in some of our, the research papers that are uh, in the background of the book, is that industries that do a lot of lobbying manage to get the regulations they want a few years later. And most of these regulations are the type that make it more costly for people to enter the industry. That's one way they protect their rents. Now the question is, why is it that it didn't happen in Europe? And I think, well, of course, it, it's not that people don't try, obviously, as you all know. The lobbyists always try. But the question is, do they, do they succeed? And the success rate has been much lower in Europe than in the US, surprisingly enough. And it's surprising because I think it's kind of counterintuitive a little bit, and also it's a, very, it's a break from the past. Okay? If you think about uh, many industries that I know quite well, in the 80s, uh, they had a huge influence on policymaking in Paris. And the same was true in Berlin, the same was, was true in Rome. Okay? So the tradition in Europe is not to have very strong and independent regulator, specifically not in antitrust, for instance. So how come that these European countries that did not have a tradition of, of strong and independent regulators somehow managed to do something better when they did it together at the EU level? And I think that's the same story as for the central bank, essentially, which is because we didn't trust each other, either we were going to do nothing, but if we were going to do a single market, then we would all agree that the best would be to a very independent regulator because that way, at least we can be sure that the other countries cannot influence the regulator too much. That's true for the big ones, clearly France and Germany, think, of, think about that. It's also very importantly, I think, true for the smaller countries. Because if you're a small country, you don't want to be in a single market where the, the two big countries could decide together what to do and you get screwed. Okay? Which is actually exactly what I would have happened in Alstom Siemens, for instance. Um, and so it's very important for the smaller countries also to be reassured that the regulator will be independent and would look at the entire EU without being influenced by the, the really big countries. So we created the regulator because we had that in mind. And one unintended but positive consequence of that is that we have the most independent central bank in the world and also the most independent market regulator in the world. And over time, it so happens that this regulator resists lobbying more efficiently than US regulator. One year to the next, you don't really see it, but if you accumulate over 30 years, you can see the impact. Um, so to conclude, just so that we ha you have a sense of you know, how big the effects are, uh, so again, my estimate is that the median household in the US is paying about 300 bucks too much per month when they go shopping. Yeah. So, you know, so, just to, so that's kind of for, for the median family. 
Um, if you transfer that into, you aggregate for 12 months for all the household, that's about $600 billion of consumer spending, which is paid on rents. Okay. Um, so that would be direct saving, if you want. If these people didn't have to um, pay higher prices, that's how much they would save in any given year. But of course, that would not be the end of the story, because as we saw, one of the first things that happens when competition declines is investment and innovation decline. Uh, and of course, the flip side, like dividends go up. Um, so if you simulate an economy uh, with a higher degree of competition in the goods market, then you, you have this direct saving immediately, because that's the slower prices, all else equal. But then the general equilibrium effect, going through the labor market and investment, also increase wages, real wages. So that means that the true increase in GDP would be about one trillion, which is about 5% of, of private GDP, of course. I'm not counting the government here. That's about 5% of the economy. So GDP would be up by about 5%. And you would have about uh, $250 billion of redistribution. Because capital income would decrease by $250 billion. So total income would go up by one trillion. But uh, labor income would go up by more than that because there would be some transfer from capital income to the fact that profit margins would be a bit lower. So for the median family in the US, that number is about $5,000 per year. So it's 10% of their income. Because the median family has a lot of money coming just from labor, not too much capital income. So for them, it would be an improvement in their standards of living by about 10%. So I think that's the cost of not having good competition in the US. Thank you. Thank you very much, Thomas. I mean, that was a very clear elaboration of the market trends in the US and the associated problems, a problem of bad concentration, as you mentioned, that had implications for investment, for prices, and also the increase in lobbying played a detrimental role in that. Two questions before we go to Reinhilda. The first one is, so you mentioned briefly about the Siemens Alstom case uh, and uh, I mean uh, due to globalization there is also the element of global competition and we see more and more voices that go to the direction that uh, European firms should be more, uh, have more uh, should have more strong uh, stronger presence in the global markets they should grow they should compete globally with uh, the big firms from US and China in a more effective way uh, and uh, there are also calls to increase somehow the size of European firms and regulators competition authorities should uh, probably adjust uh, their uh, principles and uh, approach uh, uh, to this target. How do you feel about that? I have very little patience for this argument. I think it's completely bogus. Um, completely bogus for two reasons. The first one is if you want strong firm, they need to compete at home. That's, that's as simple as that. If you want to have firms that are strong at the export market, they need to have strong competition at home because that's how they get fit. <laughs> It's a bit like saying, um, I'm going to train for the Olympics by making sure my athletes don't run too much because you know they're going to get tired, the poor guys, and then that's completely bogus. So, um, and so even, even if you actually wanted to do it, it wouldn't work. It would not make them uh, more fit. And the other thing is, I don't understand why we would ask European consumers to subsidize exports to build cheap uh, subway in Buenos Aires. I mean, if the Chinese want to do it, be my guest. But I think that's not our job to do that. Um, so... I think that, uh, so 
most of the time, I think these arguments are utterly bogus. And they are just, actually, they are just talking points of the lobbies that the guys repeat without even thinking about it. So that's terrible. Um, on the other hand, there are some industries. I mean, there is one industry where there is a big exception. That's, of course, the issue of big data and artificial intelligence. But that's not only for antitrust. It's mostly for, uh, for democratic reasons, which is you, you don't want to be in a world where uh, the, the cloud and big data analytics and AI are all dominated by Chinese or American companies, because I think that's bad for democracy. So for that, I'm all in favor of spending public money on that efficiently, but, you know, uh, but that's a different argument. For the, 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 um, the argument typically exclusively economic, I don't think it flies. Uh, clear. Um, the second question has to do with um, going to the statistics on markups uh, and uh, concentration. Uh, let us assume that I'm a policymaker. Uh, I'm going and see the study by the Locker and Ecoute, the uh, last one of global market power, and then it is reported a sharp increase in markups in Europe. Uh, then I go to the Chicago School Criticism by Trainer that say, you know, the methodology is not so good. Uh, actually, markups are not increasing even in the US. Um, you have also the Chris Cuolo and co-authors OECD study that studied 26 countries uh, in the sample and they report increasing uh, markups uh, in line with uh, Delocker and Ecoot, uh, 19 of them are European. You show us uh, some statistics that show that markups in Europe didn't increase. As a policymaker that I need to design the policies of the future, I need to be convinced about what happens. Who is right? I'm confused. Can you help me? Yeah, so that's, that's, a, that's one of the frustrating things in academic research. So first of all, you have to understand what the issue is. The issue is you have profit and you have markups. So when we define markups in I.O., it's the price relative to the variable cost. Okay? And then it all boils down to what's the variable cost. And so the methodology that these people use treat as variable costs essentially like production costs. But what's the production cost in the modern economy? You know, like in the old days, so take, take a car, for instance, that's going to be easy. Imagine a car. So what's the markup of a car manufacturing? Well, it's not the profit margin. It's the price of the car divided by the cost of producing the car. And you don't count any design in it. See what I mean? So design is fixed cost, so that doesn't show up. And then you look at, once we design the car and we have to build it, so you look at the price of steel, the wages of factory workers, that's the variable cost. And the markup is the price relative to this variable cost. So that's well defined, okay? And then you have a neat separation between the short-term markup over the variable cost and the long-term profit margin, which takes into account the entry cost or the design cost, okay? So this nice and neat dichotomy works well for manufacturing and is utterly irrelevant for the entire rest of the industry. So all of these guys, what they do, if you look at their measures, it tracks one-to-one -one the growth of intangible. So they are not measuring markup. They are literally measuring the share of intangible in the economy. Um, and intangible have been growing everywhere in Japan, in Korea, in the US, and in Europe. And so then if you just plot intangible share, everybody's going up. I just don't see that. I think that's essentially irrelevant. Um, now, in some models, you, it's, it would still be great if we could have a perfect measure of variable costs. I think it's just a moot debate. Like over five years, all costs are variables anyway. So I think in the long run, I don't see the... I don't see the usefulness of these measures relative to simple profit margins. Um, what I think is, on the other hand, what I think is really bad is that the, uh, the industrial economic literature hasn't come up with good data on prices. That's what we're missing. 
the, the thing that's criminal in the research is that if you look at the, the data we have today, we still don't have good price data. Like the, all these measures that people use, the one that you mentioned, the Deloker et al., they use firm-level accounting data. There's not a single price in it. Like it's the, the area of big data, and we don't even have price level to match with our firm-level data. That's actually a massive failure of academic research. Thank you, Thomas. Um, Rangelda, you read the book, you hear the presentation, bad concentration in US, effective concentration in Europe. What are your thoughts? You, you are connected. Does with it work? Yeah. Does it work? Yeah, okay. So uh, it was really nice to read uh, the book here. It's uh, something you can even do it in the evening when you're tired because it's really a, a very uh, easy read but still gets a lot of, of important mes messages here. So I think we all agree on, on this uh, increase in concentration, both in the US and the EU, uh, more so in the US than in the EU, and that that's correlated with uh, EU competition policy enforcement, <coughs> which is much more higher quality and, and more independent here. But the big question, indeed is, is like already uh, Georgios has also uh, mentioned is it good or is it bad uh, and particularly in, in for consumers and in competition policy authorities it's not a language it's not the dominant positions per se it's the abuse of dominant positions that matters uh, here uh, and sorting that out for many possible efficiency advantages uh, here so first of all in terms of the efficiency advantages i think it's normal that also with the whole digitization we see increasingly more advantages of big scale uh, here beyond the normal scale economies also network effects the use of big data here so there definitely also are efficiency reasons for uh, these trends towards uh, bigger companies here. Uh, but what matters really is, uh, does it lead to, to much more abuse of, of dominant positions here? And for that, I think it's what's really critical to examine are four things. First of all is effective competition, because that's really what's pivotal to identify whether there is abuse of, of any of these dominant positions uh, here. Um, and effective competition is not linearly related to the number of firms and what market share that they have, because even among very few players here, you could have very effective and very tough neck-to-neck -to -neck competition, like Philippe Arion actually mentions this uh, here. So what's really important is to look at, uh, even among fewer players, which is typically what we will be observing, is there enough effective competition, turbulence among the market leaders here, that's really the effective mechanism we should be looking at to look at abuse of dominant positions here. So effective competition among the leading firms, perhaps matters more than just effective competition in general. And secondly, also the contestability of the leadership uh, here. So you mentioned in your book we have to look at barriers to entry. There is indeed some evidence that there is less entry going on, but what matters more is not just entry into sectors, but really entry into the group of leading firms uh, here. So how stable is this group of leaders and how easy is it for new firms to become part of that new group of leaders here? And in that respect, what matters also is to look at the scaling up uh, here. So it's not just entry, but also how easy is it for firms to scale up such that they be can become an effective new leader here and, and actually um, contest the, the leadership of, of the existing firms here. And here the EU has some kind of disadvantage, we typically look at this, uh, in the sense that there is, we might have also entry, but the question is, do we have enough scaling up so that you can actually contest leadership positions in, in new sectors uh, here? So that's, I think, a second important dimension we have to look at, is this contestability 
um, but not necessarily only just barriers to entry, but contestability into the group of leading firms. Third important dimension to look at is the, the market definition uh, here. So what is the relevant market on which we will find relative potential competitors? You look mostly at, at domestic competition, like in the US market, um, so what's the market power in the US? But uh, particularly in many high-tech sectors, the relevant market is the global market uh, here, so it's US, US, and, and EU firms, but also increasingly Asian markets here. And particularly competition in the Asian markets will matter because that's where the growth and demand uh, is here. So in that respect, I think we also need to think more carefully about what the relevant market is in a geographic uh, dimension. Uh, actually, Vestiger uh, announced two days ago when in a, one of her first interviews, the first thing she's going to do within her uh, com portfolio is to, re to, to revisit market definition here, and not only in terms of uh, product market and service market definition, but also geographic market uh, definition here, and I think that's really important. And then a fourth element is what is the relevant dimension of competition? So traditionally within I.O. we look at price and quantity competition, so that's important dimensions of, of uh, competitive uh, instruments here. But in high-tech markets, the competition really is about R&D and innovation uh, here, and so the competitive space is really in terms of, of uh, competing among uh, the, the leading firms with R&D and innovation. And that partly explains the, the, the concentration that we're seeing here because, because of this high competition in R&D and innovation, that really creates a, a cost of entry, a barrier to entry for smaller firms here because that kind of game between is only played between large players here and increases the, the barriers to entry uh, here. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that there is no tough competition here because, again, the competition will be in terms of R&D and innovation among a few uh, big players here. And what we would need to look at is really the concentration of R&D investments and innovation investments here and how, how tough that competition uh, in R&D space is and how contestable that uh, R&D competition is. And so we know that in R&D the concentration is even higher than in product markets here, so it's really only the big players here. But again, what we need to look at is how competitive that competition uh, game is in terms of uh, R&D. And in that respect, R&D on the one hand, um, creates more economies of scale and makes it more difficult for new firms to enter, but on the other hand, R&D also very quickly dissipates here, so creates room for diffusion for new players here, and particularly also with drastic innovations can create room for completely new players as well. So although the R&D game will be highly concentrated, it, at least in theory, there is more room for new players and contestability here, particularly with respect to drastic uh, innovations. So I guess all what I'm saying is that what we need to have is so the increase in concentration is something we will have to live with <laughs> because of digitalization, but what we need is a much more careful case-by-case -case analysis, like the competition policy authorities are actually doing, of whether it's good or bad for consumers. And those analyses should look beyond static price effects also, and particularly at dynamic innovation effects uh, here, um, do much more monitoring and being proactive in monitoring markets uh, and, and their evolution, um, and look at R&D competition analysis effects on innovation, uh, but in that respect, I think DigiComp 
uh, in Europe, but particularly also in, in the US, still has to go much more further in looking at these dynamic effects uh, here, uh, looking at um, verifiability and sh beyond verifiability in short-run effects, also to look at, at these competition effects uh, here. So for me, that's really where most of the action is actually taking place in terms of innovation, because that will, in the end, determine the long-run effects uh, for consumers uh, here. And then one final small point, in terms of uh, this crucial difference between the EU and the US in terms of competition policy enforcement um, and lobbying, I think the really critical thing is the campaign financing uh, here, because uh, that really jeopardizes the independence and quality of your political system here. And if that's jeopardized, then of course there is more reason for lobbying uh, to be effective uh, here. But it's really this, this campaign financing that's the critical uh, difference. And I'm very happy that in Europe, at least in continental Europe, we haven't gone that far here. But that's for me the most critical uh, difference. Uh, Thank you very much. Um, I think we have many new uh, dimensions on the table. Um, so, uh, Thomas, I would like to have your comment on what uh, Rangelda said. Probably also to, um, I mean, uh, underline this scale-up issue we have in Europe, uh, that it is, uh, uh, and the number one uh, reason for that is uh, the lack of uh, venture capital financing, may maybe, that it is uh, much more uh, available and abuse than the US. So, the question then also relevant to what you said before, is how venture capital uh, financing is concentrated in a market that, as you said, there are not so much opportunity. So, no, I think I agree with everything Rainida said. So I, I, I agree that the, um, that the frontier of this uh, kind of antitrust action is uh, to figure out the dynamic effects, and it's very hard. It's also because it's much more uncertain, so you have to deal with probabilities. And there, really what happens is that the judges in the US just, just don't want to hear about it, period. So, and that makes it hard for even antitrust agencies, even if they wanted to try. Uh, it would make hard for them to win the case. Like the idea of, so, so take the idea of nascent uh, competitors. So if you have a firm that, you know, right now is small, but could become a significant competitor in five years, or maybe not, you don't know. Are you going to allow the, the, the incumbent to buy that small firm? Okay, so that's uh, predatory or that's, you know, like killer acquisition has different names. But, you know, potentially it would prevent that small firm from growing into a competitor. But you have no ideas of today. It's just a, it's a probability. Well, the judges in the U.S. Don't essentially refuse to hear these arguments. So that means that's going to be very hard for antitrust regulator in the U.S. to have a sophisticated approach to this dynamic um, antitrust. In, the, in Europe, it's, it's still going to be very hard, but at least we can, we can have an argument. It's not going to be dismissed uh, initially. So that's the, that's the first thing. Um, then the second issue on the, the book is not arguing that everything is great in Europe or that even better that in, in, than in the U.S. It, I'm arguing that on a specific set of policies, we've done better. And these policies have to do with, a lot of it is regulation, by the way. Like the antitrust, the, the merger review is the tip of the iceberg. But much of the big improvements are in regulations. We remove regulations that led to barriers to entry throughout Europe uh, over the past 30 years. So that, I think, is the main improvement. Um, and the example I gave you is the, the entry of free uh, free mobile in the market in France. That's not antitrust. It's purely regulation. 
So this is actually probably more important. And that's also what's going in the wrong direction in the US, which if you look at, especially at the state level, there have been added regulations that lead to barriers to entry. Like in France, we have the big debate about licensing, professional reglementé, like we say in, in, in France, where we try to get rid of them. Right. We are very slow and not so, I mean, it takes a lot of time, so it's frustrating sometimes. But the trend is in the right direction. In, in the US, the trend is the opposite direction. The, state, the, the amount of licensing we have is going up at the state level, okay? So, so these are the trends that I think are, are the most important. Now, for Europe specifically about the scaling apart, I completely agree. But I think it's important to just keep in mind that uh, there you have like, I think you have three big pieces essentially. You have the funding side, you have the um, you know, market, size of the market, and then you have the competition part. I think that the US used to be better in all three, and now we are better in the third one. They are still better in the first two, so funding, the uh, funding for innovation, either uh, VC or VC-related, uh, or even like uh, indirectly by private equity, and public funding, which is huge, like the Department of Defense is just a massive amount of investment every year in innovation in the US. This we don't have, okay? It's not just the private, by the way. The, the, the public also is very big. Um, so funding, they still have an advantage. And the market, of course, they still have, a, have an advantage. Maybe one of the main reasons why in the, in the uh, the big data space or the social network space, we don't have competitors to Google and Facebook, is because we don't have a single market for that in, in, in Europe. I think that's the main issue. So if the politicians want to do something about having large, successful EU champion, the first thing you need to do is make sure that we have a single market for this kind of digital services, and we don't, right? Uh, so it's like that's kind of priority number one. So on these two dimensions, funding and just one huge market you can access immediately, I think the US still has an advantage and probably will keep this advantage for a while. Okay, I'm just saying for the third one, thankfully, we are doing a great job and we should continue. Thank you. Uh, let's open the floor for questions. Uh, please uh, identify yourself and ask. We start with Gudram and then we go here and here. Three, four questions per round. Think about some if you think about some sectors in the US, um, such as the digital sector, I mean, it, it must have a different productive production function to the classical manufacturing or or services sector, much less capital intensive, perhaps on some, because a lot is in intangible, <coughs> in digital. And so, so can you explain some of those patterns just to play the devil's advocate in the investment numbers that you show with different kinds of production functions? Let's go back to two, three questions per round. We go here, and then Gregory. Kurt Geisert, I am one of the guides in the House of European History. We had uh, Vice President Vestager in our museum two weeks ago, and she, with her competition uh, policy, she prevents uh, European champions. Example, Siemens Alstom. Question to you, are Siemens Alstom separate? Are they competitive against big players in the United States and China? Uh, Gregory Kless from Bruegel. Um, I, I found that the last slide that you showed was uh, actually the most interesting because it's the most counterintuitive. Actually, we know that uh, uh, higher competition leads to, uh, to, 
to uh, more productivity, etc. But what you said is that it would also lead um, to higher wages. And can, could you explain actually um, in a simple way for, for the non-economist in the room uh, what, how this mechanism works? Uh, because actually it's generally used by lobbyists, uh, the contrary example is used by lobbyists that if there is more competition they will have to squeeze wages uh, and they always gave example of, I don't know, France Telecom for instance. So can you explain uh, the mechanism uh, that leads for yeah, uh, lower concentration to higher wages? I think it's important. Thanks. Can we put back the slides? Because um, I have one slide I want to show you. want to start with uh, yeah the last one because it's easier okay um, in, rever in reverse order no yeah so uh, yeah so, so let's go to the last slide please no it's good that's it that's perfect okay. Yeah. Um, okay so so if you have more competition prices go down yeah. now for so there's the, the key difference there is for one firm versus for the entire economy for one firm it's clear that they are not going to be able to increase their wages in fact they're probably gonna not, not going to change their wage because they are, you know, they're gonna have to, they still to hire, they have to hire people. So if the, imagine the simple world where the labor market is competitive, well, you're not going to affect the wage because you have to hire people and the wage you have to pay them so for them to work with you is not going to change, whether or not you have strong competition. So the first order is not going to do anything for one firm, you just have lower prices. So the wage is the same, the price is lower, your profit margin is squeezed. So that's kind of what's happened for one firm. But if all the firms do it at the same time, that's very different. Because then the, the wage that matters is the wage relative to the price level. So if all the firms in the economy cut their price and none of them change their wages, well, the real wage has increased mechanically. So that's kind of the, that's the, that's the real wage effect. And then you have the second effect coming from productivity, which is once the firms start to compete more, they're going to have to scale up. When they scale up, they have to invest more. So marginal productivity of labor is going to go up. And that's going to lead to higher real productivity and higher real wages. The, that could be delayed. could take a few years to, to get there. But that's why in the model, it always happens. You have lower prices. The first impact is more purchasing power. And then the labor market gets tighter and productivity goes up. That's kind of, these are the channels. Um, so for Siemens Alstom, um, I think that the, uh, the, 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 firm, the, the issue is just the European market. Like the, if we let them merge, then you can have monopoly in many important services in the, in the railroad sector. Now, to be perfectly fair, you could imagine remedies. Like if the issue was like the signaling part of the, of the business, that the one that would get too concentrated, then you could imagine, you know, say, okay, let's, let's get rid of that part. So you can merge maybe the part which is more important in, in globally, and we protect EU competition by having by splitting up the signaling part. But I think the problem with the trains is that these things are so integrated. Like to, to get the train, you need so many different pieces from so many different uh, suppliers that it's very hard to to cut and separate. I think that's there was no good remedy. I think that's the main reason. But again, but the main thing to do I want to emphasize is the best way to have champions is to have a big market at home and let them compete. Because then you get big domestic champions. And these are the ones that win on the export market. Like all the successful firms that you hear about in the US, they started by having really tough competition at home. And you get the survivors. These are the ones who then take over foreign market shares. Um, OK, for big investment. Competitive market. It's a big competitive market. A big competitive market, yes. 
changing. Okay, so then there's one more. So for the investment, I want to show you one thing. Oh. Oh. Um, okay, good. This one. Okay, so. Um, so good time question about the investment. Yes. So um, if you look at uh, investment in the U.S., the part of the investment gap is because of the fact that there is a shift in the nature of investment towards more intangible investment. But um, what you can do, it's in the book or in some of the papers I, I wrote down, um, you can look at uh, the, the change in investment for each category separately. So, and the thing that you see is that there's been less investment in physical assets, but also in intangible assets in recent years. So both of them are going down. Um, like, so then you have the, that, that way you can get rid of the composition effect. Now, you could still argue that, well, yeah, but the intangible, not only, uh, you know, it's a separate category, we also don't measure it very well. And that is absolutely correct because, um, you know, so just give you one example. Suppose that you have uh, a firm and then you hire, you buy software written by another firm. That gets in, counted as investment, software investment. If you hire somebody to code up the same software inside your firm, that's going to be counted as wages. Now, we're going to try to adjust the national account by doing surveys and asking how many people in your firm do the coding and ask them what, and then we're going to impute the amount of investment based on their wage and the share of time they do coding. Well, you can see that's not going to work very well. So there's no doubt that there is more measurement error in that space. Uh, but even if you control, and there's really good research on that, uh, but even if you do that properly, you still find this you know, investment has been mediocre. Um, the other place where the intangible matters a lot, of course, is that once you've done a lot of, and that's actually what Rainda was saying earlier, once you've done a lot of uh, intangible investment, initially it boosts your productivity. Later on, it becomes a barrier to entry for the other ones. So that's why the, the two come together. So there's a really good research by Nicolas Crouzet and Janice Eberly who document all of that and try to do the math of you know, how much of the intangible is boosting productivity in the short term versus creating barriers for the long term. So I think these are ongoing research, and, uh, but, I, but I agree with your intuition. Now, specifically about the stars, I want to show this picture I think is quite interesting. So is it the case that Google, the GAFAMs, like we say in Europe, the Google, Apple, uh, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, are they that different from the rest? And I think they are much less different than what people think. So they, they, they might have a slightly different production function. Um, but if you compare them to big successful firms of the past, by all metrics, you know, how much money they are making, so profit margins, um, what's the stock market valuation, how fast are they growing in terms of revenues, they are very similar, actually. The numbers line up almost perfectly. Um, it is absolutely fundamental. It is completely not true that their valuations are unheard of. They are exactly the same as the valuation of star firms in past decades. So if you have one statistic to remember, take the top five firms in the US stock market and ask how much of the stock market is accounted for by these five firms only. So today, actually, you would be the, the GAFAMs today. These are the top five market valuations. It's 10% of the market. Okay. Well, it was 10% in 2000, and in 1990, and in 1980. Of course, the names were slightly different. But if you look at the top five firms in 1980, none of them are the GAFAMs, of course. 
together they were 10% of the stock market. So that's distribution has not changed at all. Um, in terms of productivity growth, they are not doing any better. That's what you see on this graph. So this is the amount of productivity growth coming from the, the top firms. So the top 20, these are the, literally the top 20 most valuable companies in the US. Um, and then the circles, top four by industry, is you take the industry classification and for each industry you pick the four leading firms in that industry. Then you end up with something like 100 or 150 firms. Um, and this is plotting their total contribution to US productivity growth. How much, just these firms together, how much are they adding to labor productivity each year? And it's a number that's significant. I mean, just when it's one person, it means you have like 100 firms all by themselves. It's 1% of GDP growth, so that's like gigantic. But you see in recent years, it's not better than in the past. In fact, if anything, it's slightly slower than in the past, okay? So they are not pulling the economy more than the stars of the past. Okay, it's, it's, that's a usual mistake people make, that to think that everything we do today is new and unprecedented. No, it's, nothing is new and unprecedented. We always had star firms. You look at IBM in the 70s, you look at AT&T before, you look at Procter & Gamble. These guys were hugely innovative. And by the way, many of them had the same exact cost structure that these GAFAMs have, which is almost all research. You know, think, I mean, like, think about in the pharmaceutical industry. That's one place where the marginal cost is kind of zero also. And it's all about you know, product development. So that's not new. Uh, and quantitatively, this, this, the firms of today, they are great. But we always had great firms. And they are not greater than the great ones of the past. Thank you. Uh, you want to react? Yeah. You have a mic. Ah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so just two points. So this goes a bit against what also the OECD has been showing in terms of um, this ri rising divergence between the leading companies growing and productivity yes. growth. You know why? Yeah. Because they are oh, because they are looking at small firms. No, yes. At the, the no, they are not. Firms. No, that's what they are. The leading in their sectors. Yeah, and they're defined by sales of our employment, and many of them are tiny. That's why they have very high sales of our employment. All right. And that's very misleading. It's a bit like this literature has so many bugs. Like that's one of them. Okay. Look at the so you look at the OCD paper you're mentioning is showing that there is a growing gap between the leading firms and the following firms, and then you like table one, which is the Summary statistics, the medium size of the median revenue of the leading firm is 500 million. It's like a German SME. It has nothing to do with Google. It's just completely or absolutely nothing to do with, with Google and these firms. So there is more concentration, uh, but it's not, I mean, it's, it's not the, 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 the pitch that they give, I don't think is the one that gives the right picture. Second uh, comment I had with respect to these um, intangible asset investments uh, here. So particularly for R&D, we have actually very good service that we've been traditionally been doing on that. Yeah. And what it actually shows also is indeed so <laughs> high concentration of R&D in a few yeah. big players here. But over time, we do indeed see that this, uh, there is much less of small new firms uh, they're actually dropping out of R&D investments uh, yeah. here. So the average might indeed be dropping, but that's basically because the lower end is, is dropping out. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that the top one is not forging ahead in terms of, but there's much more polarization going on. Mm -hmm. That's something definitely needs to be looked at in yeah. terms of what the effects are of that polarization here, whether it's good or bad for, uh, for yeah. innovation. But it's a reflection of the critical scale that you need for, for uh, investing in R&D. Uh, time for a final question, if there is any. Yeah, Oliver. Um, 
Oliver Rötig from Uni Europa, the European Services Workers Union. And I just wanted to uh, uh, follow up on, on Amazon. I mean, we had a meeting uh, 10 days ago on what to do with Amazon. And I think for the services union and for the services sector, the problem is Amazon is everywhere. There's a network effect of competi uh, competition. And I think that is something new which we didn't really have before. And how can we deal with this? And uh, one key concern is that I see a lot of companies in the different sectors, the big ones, who don't really want to invest because they don't know where the market is going. So there is basically a discouragement. And how can, can we actually deal with this uh, with a company which is everywhere, not the market leader necessarily, but I mean having an impact on uh, the different markets? Thank you. You want to? Ah. Let's take also one final question before we close. Yeah. Hi, Carles Steve. I've been in charge of merger control for the last five years here. So <laughs> listening to you is music to, to my ears. <laughs> but the risk is that by listening too much to you, we become too complacent. I agree. And, <laughs> and I wanted to ask you, when you look at the concentration indexes comparing EU, uh, US and EU, I suppose you are looking at EU level concentration indexes. But in reality, many markets are still national. The last time we, we look at this, I think in around 40% of our decisions, we still define national markets. And some of the markets that you mentioned as more worrying, telecoms, etc., remain national. So if we would do the proper comparison, let's say, concentration indexes in the relevant markets, uh, wouldn't we have a much more uh, balanced picture? Uh, wouldn't we see also uh, a, more, a bit more negative position in, in Europe with regards to concentration? Yeah, so that one is easier to answer. So, uh, yes, I agree with you. Um, but uh, so at the, we also have this uh, calculation at the national level. At the national level, though, you do have the impact of the single market. So, for instance, take, say, take, uh, if you look at concentration measure of car manufacturing in France, well, it clearly is more controlled than it used to be in terms of domestic producers. But I don't think the market is less competitive. We just have a lot, we just have a single market at the EU level. So you have these two effects, which is we have, we have efficient concentration by having pan-European firms competing in single market, <laughs> which is gonna look domestically as an increase in concentration. And then, uh, but that's a good type. And then in markets that are on, on mostly domestic, um, I think usually we don't find, I mean, the example of the telecom in France, I think we've seen, you know, or the airlines also, we've seen more domestic competition. So I'm not saying it's true in every sector, but I think broadly speaking, uh, at the national level, the trends are positive in that sense. But I do agree with your first point, which is we should not become complacent, obviously. <laughs> like, um, now, Amazon is a tricky one um, because it's tricky also in the U.S., Honestly, if like sometimes it's lumped together with Google and Facebook, but I think there's a big difference. Amazon is doing capex, is doing productivity, and uh, if I think about today, um, you know, imagine we do something drastic against Google and Facebook, and we mess it up a little bit, so we break them and then we decrease their efficiency. Um, what would be the impact on the economy? Nothing. Well, you wouldn't see it in the data. They, are, they don't matter. It's, you would have less targeted ads, who cares? Yeah, that's gonna do nothing. No, so, so if you did that with Amazon, you would have an impact because their, their supply chain management is very efficient and allows many firms, many small suppliers to access the market. So I think that one is tricky. And uh, um, their dominant position in retail is, is an issue and I don't think there's an 
easy solution uh, to it, apart from you know do it, doing case by case and having tough regulation. Uh, we are out of time. Uh, thanks so much all for coming. Please, let's thank the speakers again.